Uh, we're going to be in First Thessalonians this morning, uh, picking things up in chapter 4 of this letter that Paul has written to this newly formed church. Uh, so far, he spent quite a bit of time in this letter, um, kind of just making sure that, th- that everything's okay, that they're in good standing. Uh, there were some weird things that have gone on with him having to leave in the middle of the night, and, and he was concerned about the relationship. And so he's gone to great lengths to make sure that everything's in good standing and that things are reconciled. And that this is something that should be kind of the heart of every Christian. If you know there's a relationship out there that is off or that needs to be fixed, we should, we should strive to make it right, to get that solved as, as quickly as possible. And that's what Paul's been doing. Timothy has just returned to Paul with a good report that the church is doing well. And, um, and no doubt he also brought back some things that Paul needed to address because this is a new church full of new Christians. And when you're a new Christian, you need to be discipled and you need to be, you know, guided. And the truth is when you're an old Christian, you need to be, you know, the same thing applies, right? So from this point forward, that's kind of what we see Paul doing after a lengthy intro, he's going to get into the heart of the letter. And the first thing he's going to address is the subject of their sanctification by urging them to walk in a way that pleases God. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road and how we live out our Christianity. And so um, it, it's pretty clear that Paul has already talked to them about these things when he was there, because he's going to use all kinds of language about like, you know, you know, when we were there, what we said, you know, we brought this up before, but he sees the need to do it again. And, and I think we need to pay attention to this because the truth is This still remains true for us today. The world is going to continually tell us that it's okay to live differently than the word of God tells us to live. It's going to tell us that that God's word is outdated, that it's not culturally relevant anymore, and that we don't really need to pay attention to what it says. That is not correct. We need to. It's super important that we continue to follow the word of God, that we need to be continually reminded of how we're supposed to live. It, It matters. It matters how we live. It matters to God. It matters to the people in this church. And it matters to those outside of this church that are watching us. We say we're followers of Christ. Do we do, we, do, we do that? Do we, does that match up? You know, it's that just knowing that they're always watching. I don't know if that is something you're aware of, but it's like they're always watching. So it matters, right? God has called his people to be distinct or set apart. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. So starting in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 1, it says this. Finally, then, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. All right, Paul starts out this section by saying, finally then, brothers, and, and we can laugh at that because Paul's about halfway through the letter at this point. Um, so some of you know that when one of us up here says, you know, in closing, doesn't mean anything, you know, just settle in. It's kind of it's like, you know, Paul, I don't think that word means what you think it means. That's it's kind of, but he's really just saying, look, we've talked about all these things. Now we're getting to the, the heart of the matter. I don't think he's deceiving them, but you know, who knows? <laughs> Sometimes we say, you know, okay, my last point is this. And it's like, yeah. Anyway, it's really clear from what we've already seen in this letter. Paul desperately loves these guys. He's fully 
invested in seeing them flourish as Christians. So he spent a lot of time and energy instructing them on how they're supposed to live now that they belong to Christ. And in verse one, he establishes that that this plea that he's making for them to, to walk a certain way is based on the fact that their identity, their standing is now in the Lord Jesus. They're in Christ. That's the starting point for what he's going to say next, because they're in Christ and that's their identity. Now, what he's able to say next, they can do. So he says, you receive from us how you're supposed to walk and to please God. You've been doing it. Keep doing it. Do it more and more. I wish that when we became Christians, that, that somehow God would just instantly make us perfect and complete. So there would be this moment where like, you know, he just takes the, the sheet and unveils, you know, a perfect Brent. Wouldn't that be great? Clearly that's not how it works, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm proof of that. At least it's not how it works from our vantage point. So experientially, the way we experience him making us holy, it's, it's kind of a... There's a part of it that's true, and there's part of it that we're still experiencing. For us, there's a process of growing in our faith, growing in our knowledge, growing in our obedience. And Paul refers to this in verse 3, where he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is probably one of the most difficult things for us to understand as Christians. Uh, There are three major events that God does in the life of a Christian. There is justification, sanctification, and glorification. They're all part of God's work to transform a sinner into someone who is holy. Justification is what happens first. This happens the moment we believe. It's when God, as our judge, puts his gavel down and says that we are not guilty, that we are declared righteous. That's an amazing thing. I don't know if you can just picture that. Right now, God, if you're in Christ, he has said you are not guilty. You are righteous. The problem with that is you're like, well, That doesn't feel right. I mean, that sounds great, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, how is that possible? How can God say that we're not guilty and and that we're completely righteous? Well, it's solely based on Jesus, what he has done. It's his record imputed or transferred to you. So he took your rap sheet, paid the penalty for that, and he gave you his perfect record of righteousness. That's how that works. It's been transferred to us. So because we are justified, we are now free from the penalty of sin. That's good news. And our positional standing before God is holy and blameless because our life is hidden in Christ. That's just amazing stuff. So that's what justification is. Glorification is when holiness becomes fully realized in our lives. It happens. It's a future event. It happens on the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and we are completely transformed. And that's when we will be set free from the presence of sin and even the possibility of sin. I am so looking forward to that day. Sanctification is what happens between those two things. Okay, it's 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 kind of when we are freed from the power of sin. So justification is the penalty of sin, glorification is the presence of sin, sanctification is the power of sin. It's possible for us now to walk in in newness of life and to walk in a way that pleases God, which we couldn't before that. But unlike the other two, this doesn't happen instantaneously. Okay, so in justification, Christ's righteousness is imparted to you, or excuse me, imputed to you. And in sanctification, it's imparted to you on a daily basis. So it's different in that regard. These three things are inseparably linked together. So if if the first one has happened, the other ones will happen. It's just, it's a given. So trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior is the starting point. That's when justification happens. If that, if you don't see any sanctification in your life, though, something's off. You need to go back to step one. All right. Make sure that, that that's taken place because you will see sanctification if the first one's happened. So what is sanctification? It literally just means to be set apart for holy use. 
Okay? I like the, the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines the process of sanctification. They say this. It's the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Okay? So this is the process that we go through. We become more holy. We become more and more like Jesus Christ as our, as our Christianity, our, our, you know, our walk continues. But I think it's fair to say that of the three things, you know, justification, sanctification, and glorification, sanctification is the hardest one for us to understand and explain. Why is that? First reason is because it's really hard to measure. Um, I don't know about you, but I live with myself every day. I don't see the changes that take place in my life because I'm just, you don't notice them. So somebody who hasn't seen me in a while is going to be like, they're going to look at me after 10 years and be like, wow, you've changed. Not for the better probably. It's like, I have less hair. I have more wrinkles. I have, you know, they see that. So it's kind of like when you haven't seen a, a young kid for several years, you have that, my, how you've grown moment because you haven't seen them, but they don't notice it, but you notice it because the, the change is so obvious. That's why sanctification is hard to measure. It's hard to know if anything's actually happening sometimes. But what I would say is there should be a trajectory of growth. If you were to look over your life over the last three years, five years, 10 years, are you seeing something changing? Are you seeing growth take place? Are there, are there just, is there evidence of that? Do other people see it in your life? This is something for us to always ask ourselves and ask others. Are you seeing growth? Are you seeing something take place? You know, the, the scriptures tell us to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. And this is one of the ways that we do that. Sometimes we go through growth spurts where we just have, you know, things are just clicking and we're, we're growing like crazy and everything's working. And then there's other times when, when we feel like there's no growth. We're just stagnant. Sometimes we even feel like we might be going backwards. I don't know if you've ever had that. It's like, am I even a Christian? I, what's going on right now? I don't know. So our growth chart, you know, you have those growth charts in your house where you mark the, the people's height. So our growth charts aren't real pretty sometimes. If you were to map it out on a graph, it would look, you know, peaks and valleys and highs and lows. That's kind of how it would look. There's an old comic based on the, um, remember the footprints poem that was really popular. It used to I, people, I think every Christian used to have to have one in their house. Um, it describes this, um, this believer who's dismayed when he looks back on his walk with God. And there's times when he could see two sets of footprints and then he only sees one set and he, he assumes that God has left him. And in this little comic, which I think describes our sanctification pretty well, it shows God with his arm around this guy. And he goes, my child, I never left you in those places where you only see one set of footprints. It was then that I carried you. And your heart goes, oh, that's great. And then he, and then, then he goes, and you see that long groove over there? That's where I had to drag you kicking and screaming for a while. And, and that's like, that's pretty much describes what I, I feel like most of the time. The good news is that God is continually working, even when it may feel like he's not. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1.6. If you don't have that on your fridge or somewhere, just do that. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Isn't that good news? Thank you, Lord. Just keep in mind that the areas that he's working on in your life, are probably going to be different than the areas that he's working on in somebody else's life. I think we, we don't realize that sometimes we forget about it. So we get victory in one area and think, man, check me out. Look at me doing this really good. And then you look over somebody else who's not and you're like, Psh, what's wrong with them? They're doing the same thing to you. They're going, look at these areas that God's fixing me in. And they look at you and be like, wow, look at that pathetic. You know that we don't do that. We're all in different stages, right? A new Christian is getting, God's doing working on them. Somebody who's been a Christian for 50 years, hopefully there's a lot of sanctification that's going on. I'm not saying we put up with each other's sin in, in a way that just we just ignore it, but, but we should definitely have grace for each other. Amen.
I remember one of the first big stages that of sanctification in my life when I became a Christian at age 19, um, where I was just so foul mouthed. I don't, I'm not proud of it, but I could not form a sentence without about, you know, seven or eight colorful words in that sentence. I thought that's how you were supposed to talk. And I became a Christian. I couldn't believe what, how it changed so fast. God cleaned that. He took my potty mouth, just, you know, cleaned it up. It's like God put soap in my mouth. Not really, but it was, he cleaned it up in in an amazing way. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. But that wasn't the end of my sanctification. That was just the first thing. All of a sudden, two more areas popped up and it was like, oh man, what are these? You know, and then those got taken care of. And then three areas popped up. Fortunately, in his mercy and in his grace, he doesn't show us all at once. Amen. As can you imagine if he just, if right when you became a Christian, he just shined the bright light on you and said, this is what you look like in my sight. I think we would just implode like gone, but he's merciful. He works on us slowly, but surely. So after 35 years, he's changed me a lot, but he continues to reveal things more and more. Things that I didn't even think were sin 35 years ago, now I recognize are offensive to God. It's amazing how it kind of progresses and works. One day, the project will be completed, but there isn't a completion date in this lifetime. It's coming. There will be a, a point where it's like, you know, move that bus moment where all of a sudden you get to see the finished project and it's like, yes, this is glorious. I can't wait for that time. There's going to be a point where the declaration of who God says that I am and the experience of who I actually am will finally meet up in glorification. <laughs> Isn't that cool to think about? Like, finally, it'll be, it'll happen. A second reason that sanctification is hard for us to understand and explain is that the Bible doesn't make it completely clear who's responsible for it. So is it God or is it us? And the way the Bible would answer that is yes. So I know that sounds confusing. That's why it's hard to explain. When it comes to our justification and our glorification, there is no participation on our part. We're just passive recipients. God does it. There's no growth in either of those either. They happen in an instant and they don't change. But sanctification is different. It gradually transforms us in, in an experiential and practical way. God is the only one who can make us holy. Don't, don't make sure you understand that. As far as sanctification goes, he's the one who has holiness. We have none. He's the only one that can make us holy. But we can accelerate things by the choices that we make. So he, he allows us to participate in that way. So he's provided all the necessary means for us to grow in holiness. His word, prayer, fellowship in the church. Uh, The more that we take advantage of those things, the more we grow. The more we deny the flesh and walk in the spirit, the more we grow. The more we present ourselves a living sacrifice unto him, the more we grow. These are the means he's given us. So again, make no mistake, sanctification will happen if God has begun a good work in you, but we can do it the easy way or we can do it the hard way. Some of you know what I'm talking about right now. Uh, Some of us just Make it harder, you know, and we don't have to. There's another great GIF I saw one time, and I'm going to say GIF. If you say GIF, I don't even want to be your friend. GIF. I'm going, I know, not really. Oh, it's, it's come to that. And if you use Comic Sans font, I'm just kidding. I saw this GIF on, online, and it's hilarious to me because it, it shows an escalator, and at the very top of it, it says sanctification. And it, there's an older guy, and, and this isn't mean-spirited, I don't think, so I hope not. He gets on the escalator and somehow he just kind of starts to fall over and he doesn't fall hard, but he pretty soon he's on the escalator kind of upside down. His legs are in the air. He's flailing or he's just flopping around on the escalator the whole time he's going up. (laughs) 
Okay? But it ain't pretty. And I think that's what some of us do in our sanctification. It's like we're doing it the hard way. There's a much easier way to get up to the top, you know, if we're just kind of, you know, one foot in front of the other kind of thing. But that's how, you know, we do it sometimes. We, we, could, we could shortcut this by participating. But it will happen. The Bible talks about sanctification in a way that it makes it even more confusing. It says that it, it is happening, it has happened, and it will happen. So it would be correct to say, I am sanctified, I'm being sanctified, and I will be sanctified. And that's partly why we have a hard time explaining it. Now, even though I know all these things to be true, it can still be frustrating because I don't feel holy sometimes, and I really want to be holy. I don't know if you have that angst in your life as a Christian. I want this, I want this to, to not just be a positional truth, a standing before God, but I want it to practically be real. That's what the desire of my heart, and sometimes it's not. And that's, that's that, you know, that frustrating thing that we, we deal with. It's also interesting that the Bible refers to Christians as saints, right? And if you read, Paul says, you know, the saints in Ephesus, the saints, and you always think, oh, there were saints there? I grew up Roman Catholic, and I wonder who they were. No, all believers are called saints, right? That's how he refers to the church. You are, I mean, it sounds weird to me still. I don't know if it's my, my, my Roman Catholic upbringing or the fact that I'm aware of my sinfulness, but St. Brent just sounds wrong. I mean, you, amen, you know, it's just like, no, that can't be right. That's what the Bible calls us. And the word saint is actually linked to the word sanctification. It's, it's the idea of set apart as holy. Now, this is hard for me to think of myself in that way. I don't, I don't think of myself as holy or consecrated or set apart by God as special in that way. So it's helpful for me to think about another thing in the Bible that is, that is called this or this, this has happened to and so I don't know if you guys know the Ark of the Covenant, right? If you've either read your Bible or watched Indiana Jones, I guess one of the two. Hopefully it's the Bible part, not the other one. But, but this is this, this um, magnificent, holy, you know, basically box that, you know, it was supposed to literally contain God's presence or symbolically, but God's omnipresence. So we kind of understand this, but it was terrifying. Uh, this thing was so holy. Everybody knew it. If you, you know, touched this thing, what would happen to you? He would die. I think about poor Uzzah. You know, it's he's they're walking along. He sees it starting to kind of tip, and he sticks his hand out and he touches it to, and Uzzah's gone. That's holy. That's crazy. If you if the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, they did capture it and they put it in their little temple area with their god Dagon, and they're like, okay, let's go to bed. And they woke up the next morning, walk in. <laughs> Where's Dagon? He's on the floor, face down because he's next to something that's holy and they prop him back up and then they go to bed again. They come back the next day and he's fallen down again. This time his head broke off and his hands broke off. So this thing was holy. Well, why was it holy? Because God made it holy. God consecrated it as holy. It symbolically contained his presence or literally contained his presence. And that's what he's done with us. I mean, that's amazing to think about, isn't it? I mean, apart from God doing something, it's just a wooden box. You know, cool looking, but it's God made it holy. God has made you holy and he wants you to live that way. He wants the, the declaration and, and the, the actual person to, 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 to be the same thing. Okay, I'm nowhere near my notes again. So there's a next point. Let me find it. Um, this helps us to understand why it's so important for us as Christians to walk in a way that, that matches what he wants us to be. He set us apart for himself and he set us apart from the world and he wants us to be distinct. Uh, it kind of reminds me of when I was a kid, it used to frustrate me so much when I would, you know, go up to my mom and dad and say, you know, guys, I want to do this. I want to do this thing. And they would say, 
you can't do that thing. And I would say, all the other kids are doing it. And what would they say back to me? Well, you're not other kids. And it used to make me so mad, but this was the idea. Um, my father cares about me. He cares about what I do. He cares about how I represent the family. He cares about me honoring him, and I should too. So we're not like other kids. We're distinct. We're set apart. We're holy because God has made us that way. We cannot escape the fact that if we have been made holy by God, there should be evidence of that. I want to make sure we, we don't miss that. This, this doesn't mean we achieve perfect holiness in this lifetime, but it means what, what James, how he put it, faith without works is dead. A lot of people will claim to be Christians. But at some point, if their walk doesn't match their talk, you have to wonder if their claim is real. And I don't say that in a judgmental way. I say it in a loving way, in a concerned way. There's a great little saying. I don't know who said it, but it's this. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Okay? Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. There will be evidence of that that, that, that comes in the, in the way of holiness in your life. And one of the dangers that we run into here at the door, the, you know, because we preach a gospel of grace, we preach the finished work of Christ, that Jesus did it all, all to him I owe. We, we preach that. And that can, that can lead some people to believe that, that works don't matter, that obedience doesn't matter. That, and that's, that could not be further from the truth. The Bible is full of imperatives that tell a Christian how they are supposed to conduct themselves. The problem is the order in which these things occur. Right? Do I behave a certain way so that God will love me and save me? Or does God love me and save me so that I am now willing and able to behave a certain way? You see, one is something I do. One is something God does. The first one is, is, is man-centered. The second one is, is something that, that, that God is responsible for. Okay, so finally, brothers, see what I did there? <laughs> Don't get excited. <laughs> God wants his people to be holy, and he has provided the means for us to do it through giving us his Holy Spirit, through, through making us a new creation with a new heart that can pursue holiness. And now Paul is going to give us a practical way that we see this working itself out in our lives. Um, this is where it gets a little bit rough. Been a pretty easy ride so far. Been enjoying it? Great. Here we go. Verse 3 talks about a controversial subject that was extremely controversial in their day. And guess what? It hasn't changed much. It's going to be controversial. So I'm going to say, brace yourselves. Here we go. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul is making a distinction between, between those who don't know God and the way they conduct themselves and those who do know God and the way they conduct themselves. Part of being set apart as holy by God includes abstaining from sexual immorality. The Greek word here is, is pornea, where we get our word pornography, but it's not just limited to that. Um, th that word was a, a catch-all that, that described a lot of things. People today have, have kind of gone to great lengths to redefine what sexual, what sexual immorality means, uh, but, but the Bible's really clear on it, although not real popular, I'll say that. But it's clear. We have that going. And, of course, we, we see that um, younger Christians or younger generations have been brought up with a very different idea. They've been, they've been taught that, that there are things that are just completely normal and okay and that, that we're actually hateful and intolerant if we try to redefine, you know, what the world says is okay or not okay now. 
And so this is why it's so controversial and kind of tricky. And I'll, I'll just tell you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay my cards on the table and just tell you that as pastors at the door, our presupposition is that the Bible is literally the word of God, that it tells us how he wants us to live and that it's authoritative. So that means that I bend my will to this and not the other way around. So if, if the Bible tells me this, I submit to that. I, I, don't, I don't say this is how I want to live and do things and believe, and then I'll find a way to, to twist and bend the scriptures to make it so. I don't, we don't do that here. And so um, that's my presupposition. That's, that's how I'm coming at it. So what is sexual immorality and what does it include? Um, by the way, the Bible is consistent throughout. You don't have to try to figure this. If you want to see it, it's clear to see. From Genesis to Revelation, pretty obvious, pretty easy to see. We just don't want to see it that way often. So, so that's what we do. But, but there is a passage that makes it so crystal clear that I'm, I'm pretty fortunate or thankful that it's there. It's in 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Paul is addressing a church that was filled with sexual immorality. They were doing all kinds of things, things that even that like non-Christians were going, ew, that ain't right. I mean, it was that bad. And Paul writes to them to straighten them out, to tell them what, how God defines sexual immorality and tell them what they can do to avoid it. And this is what it says, super simple. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, that's the problem, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's the solution. That's it. It's pretty straightforward, pretty narrow definition of how God views it. Now, some of you may have already revolted inside and said, wait a second. Um, Paul anticipated this, fortunately, because he, he knew that they would too when they read it. And so he addresses it. They lived in a culture that, that was pretty messed up and embraced just about everything. And it's kind of like what our culture is like too. I thought about... Um, because you can, I don't even want to go into what like we, we've begun to normalize now. Um, it's getting weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder. I thought about like giving examples just to try to drive the point home. And then I thought, I'm not going to do that on a Sunday morning. <laughs> just isn't what we need to do. But it, it's almost like this can't be really happening right now. And, and so, so what was going on there? What's going on here? Pretty much the same. So if you've revolted inside and said, I don't like that definition. This is what Paul says in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So he's basically saying, if you have a problem with this, you need to take it up with God. Because he is the one who gets to make these definitions as the creator. He's the one who gets to decide these things. He's also saying that if you have complete disregard for God's will and God's design, something's wrong because he's given us his Holy Spirit to guide us into truth and to transform our minds so that we will accept these things. And I can tell you straight up that the, my view of almost everything changed when I became a new Christian. That's all the stuff that I thought was fine, fine, changed rapidly. So I was like, drugs are fine. Alcohol's fine. Drunkenness is fine. Sex is fine. Abortion's fine. I can go right down the line. I thought all that stuff was totally fine. When the Holy Spirit came into my life, all of that. So I had a big problem with all of those things. Now I knew what something shifted in me because God's presence was there now when it wasn't before. So my point is something should change. If you, if you cannot or will not accept God's definition of things, what does that mean? Now I, I it may mean that the Holy Spirit's not present. It may mean that sal salvation has occurred. Sometimes it can just mean that, that it's so personal to us that, that we have a hard time 
accepting it. And what, I'll, what I mean by that is it's easy for us to accept cold, hard facts until we attach the face of somebody that we love to those cold, hard facts. You know what I mean? And, and I wish all this stuff we're talking about was theoretical right now, but it's not because we see it. We hear about it in your lives. Stuff goes on all the time. I wish it did, but it does. This can become so personal that we just have a hard time accepting what God's word says. There is a way for us, by the way, though, to be loving, to be respectful, and to be kind to somebody who doesn't accept this definition of of sexual immorality and still agree with God. You know, the world tries to tell you that's not possible anymore. It is possible. Be nice, right? But still adhere to God's definition. I know that there are people out there right now that have family members and friends who are involved in sexual immorality, whether they're sleeping around or, or living together before they're married or have same-sex attractions or gender identity issues. These are all things that are really happening. What do we say to them as Christians? I would want them to know that they have been made in the image of God and that they have tremendous value in God's eyes. I would want them to know that his design in these things is beautiful and perfect and going against what he has intended is disrespectful and offensive to him to the one who's fashioned us according to his divine wisdom and purpose. I would want them to know that they're never going to be at peace unless they align with him and his desires for them because he's made us that way. He's built us a certain way. None of us feel right in this world when we aren't in harmony with our creator. And the answer is to be reconciled to him. That's when that hole inside of us is filled and we can begin to experience the love and the acceptance and the wholeness that we long for. But going against God will have the opposite effect from what so many people are trying to achieve. They think that this will bring them that wholeness and that acceptance and those things. It will actually drive them further from what they're looking for and leave them disconnected and frustrated and and hopeless ultimately. There'll be that kind of continual feeling of alienation from the God who wants a relationship with them and even most of the people in their lives because it, it tends to just drive that wedge further. You know, why is sexual immorality such a big deal to God? I think that there's, there's this thing that we have where we, we think God's trying to keep us from something. He doesn't, you know, he's a killjoy. He doesn't want us to have any fun. We think that way, don't we? God just wants to, oh, there's fun going on over there. Let me go over there and stomp that out. You know, that's what we think of. That's not true at all. He's not trying to keep you from something. He's trying to give you something amazing to enjoy. I don't know. I mean, if you think, who created sex? He did to be something amazing and pleasurable and awesome and enjoyable. But just like everything else, there's a holy way to enjoy what God has given us. And there's an impure way to use what God has given us. So somebody one time said fire in the fireplace. Good fire outside the fireplace. Yeah. Devastating bad. But there's something about us that wants the thing we're not supposed to have. I don't know what that is. I have it, you know, it's like, I got some of that. If you say, don't cross this line, it becomes like, oh yeah. I mean, that comes up in me. If you say you're not supposed to do it this way, I'm thinking, watch that. That is in every one of us. We see it in the garden from the beginning. Adam and Eve were told you can't, you can't go to that one over there. And it's like, watch us. That's what we want to do. If God says we're supposed to do it this way, we want to find a different way to do it but it's not going to be better than what he's offered us. He's offered us something that is the best thing. And, and anything other than that will be, will be falling short. You know, the idea of casual, meaningless sex is prevalent in our day. 
but there's nothing casual or meaningless about it because God has designed it not to be that way. He's designed it to be a holy thing for marriage for a man and a woman who have come into covenant relationship with him to be bound together as one flesh. You know, we talk about what that means to be one flesh. It's certainly more than something that's just a physical thing. It's, it's a spiritual and emotional connection. It's powerful. A lot of us have really bad memories. I can't, I can watch a movie, you know, and not remember like Joy will say, you watch this. And I'm like, I don't think I have. And then by the end, I'm like, oh yeah, I have. I mean, I'm to the point where I can hide my own Easter eggs, <laughs> right? It's, get, it's getting there. You might think you have a bad memory, but I'll bet you, you can remember every person that you have been intimate with in this way. Why is that? Because it binds you together in a way that is supposed to be a permanent thing. So, so when we do it improperly, part of you goes with them and part of them goes with you and it stays that way. That's a serious thing. God takes it so seriously. In verse six, he talks about this, this solemn warning that God gives when we, when, we, when we do this wrong, when we wrong a brother. It doesn't give us specifics. And I'm kind of glad it doesn't because if it gave you a specific, you know what we would do? We would be like, oh, I just won't do that. <laughs> and we do everything else on, you know, but it doesn't, it leaves it open. So we don't know what it is, but it talks about when we do something in regards to this in, in a wrong way, that God takes it seriously. So listen to this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Some of you have been wronged in, in, this, in, in, the, in the way we're talking about today. And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's one of the hardest things about being a pastor is to hear some of the things that, that people have done to each other and to, to kind of try to walk through that, that suffering with you. Um, some of you have wondered where God is when those wrongs have happened. And I read this verse and I just go, wow, I don't have a good answer to where he is, but I know that he's an, he's an avenger of these things. It says that he, he, he cares, he takes it seriously, and he's an avenger of these things. And I take great comfort and hope in that, knowing that. If you have been wronged, he's able to restore you and to make you whole. He's the redeemer. He's the one that will, will um, take something that's horrible and, and turn it into something beautiful. And I've seen him do that time and time again. He, he can do this, and I believe that. If you are struggling in the, in the sense of you're struggling to be set apart in these things, um, in these areas, it's just an area that you struggle with and, and fail in. I, I would just encourage you to trust your father's plan in these things. He knows what's best for you. He has a design and a desire that you can follow. You know, it's, it, it's sometimes we don't like to follow the instructions. I'm a, I'm a guy. And so, you know, Christmas just came and went and you get that new thing and you, the instructions come and you just want to take them and chuck them and be like, I'll figure this out. And you end up with something pretty messed up. It's like, follow the instructions. It will benefit you and you'll come up with something beautiful the way it was intended to be. And then lastly, I would just say, and this, this lastly is pretty true. If there's someone out there today who has blown it when it comes to sex and feels unworthy and unforgivable, I would just remind you of God's ability to redeem any situation and to make us holy and to keep us holy. You know, confess your sin, turn from it, and he will be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. I love that. That's a promise that God has made. 
So nobody has gone too far. There's this great story that um, Pastor Matt Chandler, he's a guy that you may have heard of. I'm stealing this from him because it's just a good, a good illustration. He tells a story about when he was in college, he and his friends were ministering to this single mom who was in an extramarital affair, and uh, they were trying to just witness to her so they would watch her kids. And they invited her to this church event, hoping that she would come, and she said yes. So she shows up to this thing, and they're like, great, this is going to be really good. Well, the subject had happened to be sexual impurity. And the pastor that day um, was kind of teaching it in a way that's not Christ-centered, not gospel-centered, but was very moralistic, kind of that, you know, you better not do this or God will strike you with some kind of venereal disease. I mean, it was that kind of a message. It was not um, not very, not, not a lot of gospel in it. Um, and he's hearing this and he's getting more and more frustrated. And, and the, the pastor's big idea was to take this rose, this beautiful, pristine rose, and, and pass it around. I want everybody to touch this rose, smell it, touch the petals, you know, really everybody, make sure everybody sees it, make sure everybody touches it. And then at the end of the sermon, his big crescendo was to say, now, where's my rose? Who has it? And then he brought it back and he got it and it was all broken. It was all the petals were off. The stem was broken. It was just, it was a mess. And his point was to say, who would want this? Who would want this? And Chandler describes the feeling he had inside of him of like wanting to hurt this guy. And he said, it took everything I had not to stand up and yell, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the rose. And that's the beauty of the gospel. We're all broken. We're all just messed up. And Jesus wants us the way we are. And he doesn't want to leave us in our brokenness. He wants to, he wants to fix that and he can. And so I'm so grateful that he took a jacked up broken rose like me and, and loved me and gave his son for me so that I could have life. So I don't want to do it the world's way. I want to do it his way because he's my father who loves me and who truly wants what's best for me. All right, Father, thank you so much for passages like these, Lord. They're very hard to preach, and uh, and there's so much life in them, Lord. And so I just pray for, for each person here today that whatever they've gone through, whatever their story is, uh, that you would meet them right now where they are, and that you would do business with them in whatever way they need to, Lord. If they need to be convicted, that you would do that. If they need to be comforted and healed, that you would do that. And we just thank you so much that you have given us your son, that, that Jesus is our righteousness, that he is our sanctification, that he is our holiness, and that, that, that we don't have to stay in this broken state, that because of Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection, uh, we can have true life with you. So thank you, Lord, so much in his name. Amen.